Good morning, everybody. So I have a four-year-old son right now, and his, well, he turns four in two weeks. His favorite thing to do is to wrestle with my husband. At night, George says he's getting him like all the energy out and mellow before bed. I think it has the opposite effect. But anyway, they're wrestling like three weeks ago before bed, doing their usual thing. And all of a sudden, it was like that moment where you're just like, oh, man, some people are not. August screams out in pain. And he had twisted his wrist or landed wrong on something. And it was just like, oh, great. You know, like I'm laughing, watching them enjoy each other. And then all of a sudden, I'm mad at George because of, their, you know, this injury. So August is screaming. We're like, what do we do? Do we get ice? Like, what's the next step here? And we're looking at this, you know, wrist that is very quickly swelling. And he's still crying, still screaming. Eventually, um, he calms down and actually um, cries himself to sleep. Okay, so this is like pretty bad. We're trying to figure out what to do. Do we take him to urgent care? Do we just let him sleep and see what happens and how he feels when he wakes up? We decide to let him sleep and George is kind of adjusting him about an hour into him sleeping and moves his wrist slightly and he wakes up from the pain screaming again. So we're like, oh great, this is bad. So all that to say, we, you know, we decide, let's just see if we can get him to keep sleeping. If he wakes up and feels a little better, that's best case scenario. We don't want to go to the doctor. We had just been to that, the doctor that day for him for something else. And um, so we get him back to sleep. And then I go in to check on him hours later. It's like 11, 1130 at night. And I go in to check on him. And I, I lift up the blanket. And I kind of turn his wrist to look at it because I want to see how bad the swelling is. And again, he wakes up from the pain. He like in his sleep, you know, felt it. It was that, um, it was that much pain for him. And so he's screaming, we cannot console him. And we're like, we better take him to the urgent care now instead of at like two in the morning, right? So better at 11.30 than 2.30. So George gets him in the car and all buckled up and is about to take him to urgent care because it's George's fault. And I'm home with Clara and, you know, I'm like, okay, I'll watch the baby. We'll go to bed. You guys take care of this. And uh, George on the way to urgent care is praying over August. They get there. They tell George that the uh, x-ray te technician is gone for the night. They have to go somewhere else. And all of a sudden, George is looking up on his phone trying to figure out where they're going. And August says, hey, Dad. Yeah. Uh, it's gone. And George is like, what do you mean it's gone? What's gone, honey? All the pain is gone. And George is like, what do you mean all the pain's gone? And he's like, it's just, it just disappeared like magic. And George is like, are you sure? Like, can you wiggle it like this? And August is back there like going like this. Can you give me a high five? He gives him a high five. Can you give me a fist bump? Gone. Zero pain. Okay. This is just wild. So they walk in the door, and I'm like, what are you guys doing? You just left. And George says he's better. And my mind, I'm just going to tell you where I go. My mind goes to, oh, my gosh, he made this up? Like, this was a long fake. You know what I mean? Like, he, this whole time, how could he for hours, like, how would he have woken himself up? I'm like, he, I mean, I know he's three, four, almost four. He's like, kind of in that stage, but like, that's intense. That's where my mind goes. August walks straight up to me at, 
midnight and goes, Mom, Dad prayed over me in the car and asked God to heal me on the way to the doctor, and he took the pain away. God healed my wrist. Just like that, with so much conviction. And he was so certain about what happened. It was like there was no doubt in his mind. Daddy prayed, and I was healed. And he's just, it was so pure and simple for him. It was just, my son had an experience with God for himself, and nobody else was in his shoes. I don't know how painful it was. And that's what it was. And today, we are going to look at a text where Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you change and become like children, you won't enter the kingdom of God. And I want to talk about that purity of faith and that heart and that belief that my son had in the moment. Not like mine, where I'm like, what else could have happened? Could he have been making it up? His first thought is, I heard the prayer, I was prayed over, I received prayer, and now I'm healed. It was Jesus. So let's pray together and we'll read our text. Sound good? Lord, thank you for letting us be together this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for children. Thank you for our children, young children, old children, children in our community. And just their spirit of purity and faith I even think of August coming home from vacation Bible school this year, singing all of the songs and learning all these new verses. Mom, did you know God's stronger than anything? Just hearing it once and believing it and letting it resonate in his soul. He believes God is stronger than anything because he heard the truth in the word of God. And I pray that for us this morning, that as we hear the truth of the word of God, we would be like children, without doubt, just letting it seep in and soak in and receiving it as truth. Speak to us now through your word. We love you, Lord. We love being together. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, our text is Matthew 18. We're just going to read four verses together. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself, set him among them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever will humble himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The first thing I notice about this passage is the disciples' question, right? It's, it's just wild to me that the disciples could have their mind set on the right thing, right? They're thinking about the kingdom of heaven. They're asking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is what they care about because they know that's what Jesus cares about. And yet their hearts are so far off, right? They're asking, how do we be great in the kingdom of heaven? And man, this is a whole sermon right here. We could talk about this, right? 
how we could, it's possible, we see in this text, to actually have your mind set on the things of God and to be far off in your heart. Ouch. But Jesus is so kind in his response, firm but kind. And I love the Mark version of this parable, says he actually picks up a child and is holding a baby. So I want you to just imagine what the disciples are looking at. Jesus is holding an infant or a small baby in his arms when he says these words, truly I say to you, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the disciples are looking at a baby, okay? Picture it, right? Nod your head so I know you're with me. They're looking at a baby and they're thinking, well, we can't become like a child because we're adults. And there's a lot of things about children that are not beautiful, right? I mean, August is also, you know, for this wonderful faith that he has, in the stage where he says no to me all the time. And he'll be like eating dinner and be like, Mom, get my water now. And it's like, where did you learn that? Like, how does that become a part of you? I didn't teach you this, did I? And so there's these stubborn, selfish, I mean, I take my kids to the beach and Clara loves to throw sand in August's eyes. I'm like, this is horrible. So Jesus couldn't be talking about these things. And, you know, some of the commentary says maybe it was even Peter's own son that Jesus picked up. And if that's the case, and you know the kid really well, you know their, their pitfalls, right? You know, like, wonderful things about them, but also the not-so-wonderful things about them. So they're looking at this child thinking, what could Jesus possibly mean when he says that you have to become like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven? But Jesus goes on, and this is the part that we're going to focus on this morning, this last verse. Whoever will humble himself like this child, I'm in verse 4, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's the humility of a child. That is what Jesus is after. That's what he cares about. And children do not care about status or position. If they see a nice old lady in the grocery store with a a hat and a sweater, and they see the queen of England, they don't know the difference, and they probably wouldn't treat them any differently, right? Because they just don't care about that. They don't know, but... We know. (laughs) We know the difference, right? We're adults. And so Jesus says, man, this is not some new teaching that I'm giving you. This is consistent with what I have been saying all along. What is the first and greatest commandment? That you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, hello, church. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is like, this is what I've been telling you all along. And humility is a relational concept. It has to do with how we treat one another. And Jesus is like, I have been saying this from the beginning. This is what matters to me. This is what is near and dear to my heart. Unless you change and become like a children, a child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is a child, a humble child. And so if we can't go backwards, how do we do this? What is our picture of what this actually looks like? And it's actually comical to me because I got stuck here thinking of like 
man, what's the perfect picture of humility? And then I'm like, well, Jesus. That's like the right answer always, right? Jesus is the perfect picture of humility. And I don't just mean in his death and resurrection. His death was the ultimate picture of humility. But in his life too, right? Jesus' entire life was a demonstration of humility. So I want to ask you all to just put on your childlike thinking caps for a moment. Just settle into your seat. My kids love stories and to just listen and receive. And I just want to walk you through very, very, very high level the life of Jesus. I want you to just listen. You've heard it before, likely. You know about the life of Jesus. But would you just think about it like a child, open, ready to receive, to hear something new maybe. Just listen, observing the humility of Jesus. What do we find? I'm going to walk through the Gospel of Luke. At the very beginning of Jesus' life, he is born into a messy family, right? Mary and Joseph are not married. Did you know this? If you didn't, yikes, sorry. Hate to ruin the surprise. It's messy. Mary and Joseph are not married. The angel comes and tells Mary. Thanks, I got to laugh out of someone. The angel comes and tells Mary. I'm going to read Luke 132. Jesus, this is who we are talking about here. He will be great. He will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. This is Jesus, the one who is coming. And yet, is this message spoken to the rich and the famous, to the ones with status and wealth? No. It's just spoken to Mary and then to the shepherds. And who were the first people to arrive at Jesus' birth? At a stable. It's shepherds. It's a picture of the humility of Jesus. And Jesus learns from his father, Joseph, the work of a carpenter, just humble life, chugging along, and the next time we see him is in the temple at Jerusalem, right? He sneaks off, chapter 3 of Luke, he sneaks off to the temple, and his parents find him in the temple, verse 46, sitting in the midst of the teachers, and this is what he's doing, Jesus, listening to them and asking questions. Jesus, the one who will be great, son of the most high, whose kingdom will have no end, is sitting and asking questions. The most humble posture I can think of. A picture of the humility of Jesus. And I love this one. Verse 51, I continue on. When Mary and Joseph are like, all right, Jesus, it's time to go home. It says he goes home with them and he continues in subjection to them. That might be the greatest picture of humility of all, right? Continuing in subjection to your parents, that's still hard for me. <laughs> but also, I mean, how many of you are living under your parents' roof right now? Woo! That's hard, right? Jesus is continuing in subjection to his parents. The next time we see Jesus, another picture of the humility of Jesus is John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan is baptizing the multitudes. Jesus arrives and does not walk to the front and announce his presence and make himself known he waits until everyone else has been baptized. Jesus is the reason that they're being baptized in the first place. And he waits until everybody else has been baptized. 
a picture of the humility of Jesus. And then when Jesus finally is baptized, you know what happens. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. The voice of God speaks out and says in chapter 3, you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased, verse 23 of Luke chapter 3. And people are watching and people are witnessing this. And Jesus emerges out of the water and preaches a fiery sermon like Peter on the day of Pentecost. I hope you're listening. No, he does not do that at all. Where did Jesus go after the God of the universe speaks out his blessing over his son? Where does Jesus go directly after this moment? The moment where he is trending. People are paying attention. He could gain a massive following at this very moment. He could have marched into Jerusalem. What does Jesus do? He's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. That's where Jesus goes after this profound moment, a picture of the humility of Jesus. Are you seeing the pattern? And then this is, this is his rhythm. He'll teach, and then he'll kind of sneak out the back door. He'll heal, and then he'll say, actually, will you just keep this between us? Don't mention it. Don't mention it to anybody else. He's content to spend an entire day with a woman at a well just one-on-one, face-to-face serving, and then his fame and popularity begins to grow. People know about him. People are pursuing him. I think about this situation where the hemorrhaging woman is just like, if I could only grab onto a little piece of his cloak. People want him. Jesus is sought after. They believe in him. And Jesus still just walks away from the honor and the fame and other people conversely, are ready to take him down. They want to get rid of him. He's causing problems. He's saying things that they don't like, that are different than what they learn and know and are good at, different than their righteousness. And they're like, we got to get rid of this guy. And in all cases, Jesus just sneaks out the back door, walks away onto the next city, into the next conversation, to the next moment, to the next relationship. And here's the thing. The spotlight is not necessarily bad. Jesus is not humble simply because he avoids the spotlight. Because there's plenty of opportunities where Jesus actually is at the center of attention, right? It's that while others are contentious for fame and power and notoriety, and making their name known, and great, and being honored, Jesus is content to do the work of God, literally the work of God, in loving, and serving, and healing, without receiving any of the honor or praise for doing it. Do you see the difference? I'll say that again. The humility of Jesus is not that he avoids attention or the spotlight. It's that other people are contentious for power and fame and to make their name known and to make themselves great. And Jesus is content to do the work of God in loving and serving and healing without receiving any of the honor or praise for doing it. And I think that when we think of this word humility, we think of being weak and quiet, you know? And let me tell you, Jesus says the children are humble, humble like this child. My children are not weak or quiet. 
And Jesus was not weak or quiet either. Jesus was zealous. He had energy and enthusiasm in pursuit of his cause, but Jesus' spirit was always in check. See the difference? He's zealous, but his spirit is in check. The, the humility of Jesus was strength under control. The humility of Jesus is that he saw others above himself, that he valued them deeply, truly, authentically. The humility of Jesus is that he demonstrated the power without receiving the praise. That is our model of humility. Jesus is like, be humble like a child. That's who's going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, I've showed you how exactly with my entire life, not just with my death. There's this quote from Spurgeon that I love. And it says this, our king came among us, meek and lowly, gently gliding through the world, seen by his light rather than heard by his sound. He was content to shun fame and to avoid applause. He frequently forbade the grateful patients whom he healed to even mention his name. His modesty and love of quiet shrank him from notoriety. Isn't that good? This is the humility of Jesus. And so how, again, I am super practical, so I want to ask the question, how did he do this? If this is the picture, if Jesus says this matters to me so much that it's a matter of the kingdom of heaven and greatness in the kingdom of heaven, and this is what it looks like in me, the person of Jesus Christ, and in a child, then how does he do it? And I think the secret to the humility of Jesus is not the love he demonstrates or the power or the service. It's in the source of his power and love. It's the place that he goes before and after he does it. Let me show you what I mean. How many of you have ever run a marathon? Wow, that's a lot of people. Okay, wait, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. That's like pretty good. Okay, a couple over here. Okay, keep your hands up, Carol. <laughs> okay, how many of you have done a marathon and didn't do any training at all, zero training, like nothing. You just walked out. Okay, nobody. Okay, because that would be crazy, right? You can't run a marathon without doing any training. When I was in seventh grade, I was on the track team. Very different than running a marathon. And we had a track meet. I was late. My mom's like, Brooke, you got to eat breakfast. I'm like, whatever, mom. I was that age. And um, ran out the door. All I had in my backpack was blue Skittles. I ate the whole box of blue Skittles. They were mint Skittles. They don't even make them anymore for obvious reasons. And I ate the whole box before the track meet. I will let you guess what came up after the track meet. Let's just say I did not prepare myself well. Okay, Jesus did not just show up with humility. Jesus prepared himself to be humble. Jesus prepared himself to be humble. And here's the thing as I'm studying the book of Luke, and I went through the whole book of Luke looking at the humility of Jesus. Here's what I found. Jesus actually prepared the same way for the track meet moments as he did for the marathon. What was the marathon? What was the big moment where Jesus shows his ultimate humility? The cross, obviously. 
But all along the way, he prepared himself the exact same way. Let me give you a couple quick little pictures, okay? Luke 5, since we're working through Luke, this is kind of where we left off. I'm just going to read them over you. Story time. Remember, you're just soaking it all in. Luke chapter 5 says this. The news about him is spreading even further. Large crowds are gathering to hear him to be healed of their sickness. Verse 16. But Jesus himself, Jesus himself, meaning like the Jesus, would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. He got away to be with the Father. He would often, this was his rhythm, very next chapter, he heals a man's hand on the Sabbath. Lots of people have lots of things to say about that. They're not all positive. Verse 12, it was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray and spent the whole night in prayer to God. He just keeps doing it. Then the feeding of the 5,000, one of my favorite stories, and I want to read the, a little snippet from the John version because this verse is just so good. It says this, Jesus, perceiving they are intending to come take him by force, take him by force, sounds like they're about to get him, right? To make him king. They saw Jesus feed everyone with the, with the loaves and the fish, and they're like, this guy's got to be king. They want to honor him. Perceiving that they are intending to come take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. What does withdraw mean? To get away, right, from everybody? It says he, (laughs) just listen to this verse. It's so comical. I'm reading right out of the NASB. I think this is one of the best translations. Withdrew by himself alone is all in the same verse. Just Just to make sure you really get the picture of what Jesus is doing. He is withdrawing by himself alone again. This is his rhythm over and over and over again, before and after he does anything. And this is where I get stuck, because I hear that the humility of a child is the goal, right? And that humility matters to Jesus. And I think I can be humble by, like, force of will. I can, I'm going to be more humble. I'm going to set my mind to be more humble. That's going to be my goal, Even Jesus himself shows us that that's not how it happens. Jesus himself says, if you want to be humble, watch what I do and do it. And what do I do? I keep getting away to be with the Father, to be strengthened by the Father. And so I want to look, our closing, one more passage, okay? This is what we're going to end with. And this is the marathon moment. This is actually a little more insight into actually what, again, super practical, what is Jesus doing when he's with the Father? Because if I'm supposed to be humble, and if I'm supposed to look like Jesus, and I know what Jesus does, and I see Jesus' rhythm of being away with the Father, my next question is, what is he doing when he's with the Father? Like, what is in that secret place? What is actually happening Because if I'm going to be like Jesus and I'm going all in, that's what I want to know. And we actually can see it in Matthew 26 in the the final evening, the evening of Jesus' arrest. I'm going to read this together as we close this morning. Jesus came with them, verse 36, to a place called Gethsemane and told his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he brings his people with him. His intention is to go pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him and began to be grieved 
and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. I love this word, with me. Okay, remember what we're looking for as we're getting to this next part. What are we looking for? What is Jesus doing when he's with the Father? Verse 39, he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. So far, here's what we see. Jesus himself, Son of God, when he is alone in his private time with the Father, falls on his face. What is that? Humility. He falls on his face and he prays. And Jesus is honest. He says, this is not what I want to do, God. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And yet, he submits to the will of God. That is it. That is what humility looks like. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping. He said to Peter, your men couldn't keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying. Get this, in case you just fell asleep really quick. That was a joke because we're reading a passage about falling asleep. Okay, just making sure you're still with me. So that you do not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is exactly what we were just talking about, right? With our willpower. It's like we want to be humble like Jesus so badly. This is, what, this is our, our desire. I want to be humble like you, Lord. And I think it's pure and true. It's like the disciples caring about the kingdom of heaven, right? And even Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So what I am doing with the Father is strengthening my flesh. He is submitting to the will of God, and he's strengthening himself by the power of God. This is what's happening behind closed doors, so to speak. When Jesus and the Father are alone, he is strengthening his flesh himself by the power of God. Like I said, he is preparing to be humble. Right? He's putting work in. Verse 42, he went away again a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink from it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy and he left them again, went and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. You know, so often when I read the gospel, I think like Jesus was so calm and courageous as he's walking toward his death on the cross, right? Because he knows that's what he's, he's moving towards, his death on the cross. He's very aware of what is about to happen. And yet he's cool as a cucumber the whole time, just walking towards his death. And the thing that I love about this passage, so often we read this passage just in the context of like, the crucifixion, and that's the part that we focus on, the part that comes after this. But what I love about this passage that I 
that I found as I was reading it this time is that Jesus is so honest and vulnerable with the Father in revealing to us, verse 37 and 38, Jesus is grieved. And it says, like, he is so grieved and distressed, it's like to the point of death. Jesus does not want to do this. He would do anything to get out of it. And I think it's easy to take on humility in a situation where it benefits us or it makes us look good or somebody's watching. It's easy for me to be humble when I'm like, okay, it doesn't really matter that much. I don't care about this. But when it's something that I don't want to do, do I have humility in that moment? When it's something that I am like grieved and distressed about? And Jesus, in this passage, I see like the real Jesus. He didn't want to do it. Like, this was not easy for him, and I can relate to that Jesus, the Jesus that it wasn't easy for. And even this is showing us that it is possible to maintain humility even to the point of death through the power and strength of the Father. That's what Jesus is showing us. That is the source of his humility is God the Father. He's submitting to the will of God, to the power. And we know what happens next, right? Jesus is arrested. Does he fight back? No, he goes willingly. He's questioned. They're trying to get him to play this game, to say the right, you know, the thing. Does he play the game? No. He maintains his humility up until death. There's this verse in First Peter that says, but while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten. But this is what he did. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's what he did. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And I think what we see when we look at the life of Jesus is that all of his decisions to back away from the spotlight to not engage in a fight that he surely could have won. He's God, after all, right? He knew what was coming. He was trusting the will of the Father, and he knew that it was going to lead him to the cross where it would demonstrate his love for us in the most humble act, in the most beautiful act, in the most loving act that we could ever imagine. And so here is the thing. If we want to demonstrate the humility that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 18, It has to come from us understanding the depth of God's love for us and the love of Jesus that he demonstrated in his life and death. And when we understand this kind of love, then we are able to surrender to the will of God because that's what humility asks of us, right? Is a full surrender to the will of God. And so as James comes up, and invites us into this beautiful moment of communion where we're actually doing this. We're reflecting on the love of God. I ask that that would impact the way we go about being humble. That it would come from a place of deep understanding and response to his love. Do you see the connection? 
we surrender because of his love, because we see that he didn't just love us enough to die for us. He loved us enough to have lived for us his whole life. And so that's our motivation. That's our motivation for humility. That's our motivation for obedience. We're responding to the love of God, okay? Let's pray. James is going to lead us. Thank you, Father, so much for the life of Jesus who shows us what it looks like to live humbly. And not only what it looks like, but how to sustain it through nearness to the Father, through nearness to you. As we are near to you and we submit our wills and we trust in yours being great, our hearts are changed. Our love and worship just explodes out of us. And we're humbled and it just happens naturally. And so I pray for that kind of humility in this church, the kind that is not from will and and just trying really hard, but the kind that overflows out of response to your love. We want to submit to you this morning. Thank you, Father. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Thank you, Brooke. Yeah, seriously. Uh, it's just so, so many applications and places where this sermon can just sort of seep into the cracks of your life and minister in areas. I don't know where you're at this week. Uh, I know, I know for me personally, um, I've been taking the last couple of weeks and trying to get away, like not going anywhere, but my away emails are up. I even figured out on my phone how to send it. If you text me, it'll say, hi, I'm not at my phone right now for a while. And the thing that I'm wrestling with is like, but what if I let someone down? What if I'm not there? And this is like one of those areas where, you know, humility, when someone says something kind to you and you say, oh, thank you so much. Well, glory's God's. That humility is kind of nice and, and maybe a little easier to bring forth. But then there's a the humility of saying, well, I am not God. Me getting away for a couple of weeks or a few weeks the world will continue on. And it's if Jesus of Nazareth saw it to be so important to just escape and just be with the Father, and here I am going, well, I'm really critically necessary in people's lives. And if I'm not there for them, then it's all falling apart. Like, that is not humility. That is pride. And I just want to say thank you. Like, that's where, that's where it hit me this morning. And I know that if we sat around and, and, and heard from each of you, I'm sure there are areas where it's like, wow, I'm thinking about this right now. And, and we're in this together as a community. What if the humility that Jesus exemplified lived out? What if we all soaked in that for a while? That was kind of the River Church's thing for a while. We're just going to try to soak in the presence of God, in reliance on God not making a big deal of ourselves, but of him. That, I'm telling you, that would be an attractive thing. And I think we would all experience a peace, the likes of which we've never experienced before. So um, as we close our service, and the way we close it, Ron's going to put on some music for us. We have some uh, individually packaged 
communion elements, a little wafer that represents the body of Jesus broken for us, and a little bit of grape juice that represents his blood poured out for us. In the ultimate act of humility, the culminating act of humility that saves our souls, lives, bodies, communities, yet it was all those lead-up moments that Jesus practiced that humility, that when it was marathon day, he went with this powerful, quiet confidence. And so uh, as you take the communion, maybe you reflect on that a little bit today. But I'm going to pray. Music will start. You just come up, take it as you'd like. And then that's kind of our close. We just sort of naturally close off. And I hope and pray you have an amazing week this week. Uh, maybe getting away a little bit. Maybe spending some time in quiet walks with the Lord or on your face before him. And Lord, thank you. Thank you for that reminder. I needed it. Thank you that I get to hear it again at the next service because I needed to hear it again. Lord, thank you for um, using Brooke's words and teaching to magnify your word, capital W. And Lord, we want to we become less that you might be greater in our lives. We want our egos to uh, die a thousand deaths while you bring us to life in you. And so this morning we reflect on that as we take the elements, the communion. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the sun is out. Communion is ready. God bless you all. Have an amazing um, week. And thanks again, Brooke.